0: Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Newsroom. My name is Katie and I will be your host as we meander into the lives of inspiring and creative people. This is a hub for makers, thinkers, and anyone else who is doing the work that they truly want to be doing. Hi, welcome back to the podcast. I'm going to keep this intro very short today because I'm tired and it's getting very late and I just want to get this conversation to you as soon as possible. So on this week's episode, we have Leah Rashaki. She is a certified rolfer here in Cleveland. She's so knowledgeable and I love talking to her. So I would advise you to go get a notebook and a pen, a cup of tea, get comfortable, and listen to this episode. There's so much to learn from it, so enjoy much for joining me Leah I'm really glad that we get to do this and I just want to start out by asking what has been inspiring you lately maybe if you heard something on a podcast or read something in a book something happened with a client whatever it is in the recently that just has kept you moving
1: I've really been exploring first I'm glad to be here thank you for Thanks. having me mm-hmm. um, this is a great opportunity to chat and talk about my favorite topic I'm openly <laughs> biased and I've been really curious lately about nonverbal communication. And there's been a bunch of books released, not a bunch, several books released in the last year mm-hmm. um, about how trees communicate, how animals communicate. Um, scientists, people who spend their lives kind of focusing on nature in very um, specific and practical ways, are sharing with us their information about and their experience about how there is communication in ways that we didn't expect. Mm-hmm. Um, And given the nature of my work, I think we communicate in lots of different ways, and I like drawing people's attention to those things, so I'm really inspired by seeing how other people talk about nonverbal communication and what the, not proof, but what the experiential demonstration of that is from different life experiences. So I've been really um, excited, I've been finding both fiction and nonfiction about trees. all of a sudden.
0: Can you talk about what some of those resources are and what they're saying about it? Sure.
1: Yeah, there's a German forester who wrote this book called The Hidden Life of Trees that is one of a handful of people who's talking about this underground web. Um, Other people have named this the Wood Wide Web, which is a clever title. That's Um, funny. uh, But basically it's um, algae and lichen and this underlying network of um, yeah. uh, relational nature, right? Communication bed um, under the so- soil that um, tree roots communicate with. Um, trees actually um, will share nutrition with a sick neighbor um, and they flood it through their root system and this kind of mat system underneath the forest. Mm-hmm. Um, and with decimating that mat system, we're changing the health of our forest. So Um, the German forester um, talks a lot about forest management techniques things that we thought that maybe we were doing right over the last hundred years that if you take into consideration this big-picture relational truth that these practices aren't maybe such good ideas and so um, having long-term growth and how you can take from long-term growth for short-term needs is still fine but if we're not decimating the forest in that process and that might be better right Um, so that's one example there was a fiction book written um it won a national book award and it's called the over story and it's 700 pages it's beautifully written um and it one of the main characters are trees oh. and that's all I can say about it <laughs> um so cool. it's it's a really great read it's okay. a great summertime read
0: so, great yeah I'll have to put that in the show notes and maybe you can send over some, some I'd of love the other to ones that you're reading yeah cool so Let's start at the beginning. Can you tell us about where you grew up? What was your childhood like and all that kind of stuff?
1: I grew up in uh, the east side of Cleveland, Mm -hmm. actually, um, on a really great street full of lots of families with kids of differing ages um, in the 70s, so lots of block parties and just neighborhood kid games and running around and stuff. So really fun um, childhood, very suburban kind of American childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, white bread, you know, kind of traditional suburban food, traditional doctoring, right. um, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and yeah. Cool. Yeah.
0: yeah. So. You were swimming a lot as a kid,
1: is that right? I was, yeah. Um, I started swimming pretty young. Um, I think I was taken to a mom-and-taught swim class when I was pretty young because my mom never learned how to swim. So she was concerned about making sure her kids didn't go without that education. Um, And apparently I took to it really well. So um, Some people say I never really left the water um but i started swimming competitively when i was about six or seven in the summers and i really loved it and that became more serious as i got older and into high school and i swam year-round mm-hmm. um and that was a big part of my life and it you know i think that having a physical expression uh, for stress for processing like i'm not sure that i was conscious of any stress when I was a teenager, but I was definitely aware of needing time to process what was happening around me, what I was feeling, navigating relationships, Um, and for me, being physical was always the best way to do that, so I used to take my camera out to the woods as well and do a lot of hiking just by myself, and swimming is obviously very... Um, it's a solo endeavor, it's you and the clock in a lot of ways, and yeah, you have teammates and it's great to support each other and all that, but um, it's really a private <laughs> kind of internal practice. Kind
0: of meditative.
1: It's very meditative, mm-hmm. and so I really like, and I was a distance swimmer, so I really like that kind of delving in and having space to sort of get through my own muck so I can come out on the other side and feel like, oh right, I'm happy to be here and it's good to see everyone and let's go play. Right. So, yeah. Do you
0: still swim at all?
1: I don't. Um, I love that you asked that though. I'm very happy to be able to tell you that I think I'm finally at a place in my own physical recovery from a series of injuries that I'm ready to get back in the pool and not actually repeat bad habits, bad movement habits. Mm -hmm. Um, I've waited a long time. (laughs) um, And I think I probably would have had fun getting into the pool before now. But um, I'm really interested in kind of coherent movements and movements that are really efficient. And I'm in a body that used to not be able to work like very efficiently. So it's a new state for me And so I'm excited to see how it feels in the water Um, And I'm actually giving myself permission to go play in the water because most of my relationship with swimming was competitive So I just I want to build and update a relationship I guess with swimming. Um, I'm very excited about it.
0: That's really great You'll have to tell me how that goes. I
1: will. Thanks. Yeah,
0: good Um, so I do want to get into how you got into rolfing and all of that stuff, but there was something you said before, how when you were younger swimming really helped you process things and Mm -hmm. how it was very meditative. So what are some things that you do now to take care of that without swimming?
1: Yeah, um, I walk a lot. I'm a big Mm -hmm. fan of walking and it's really, I tell my clients this all the time, this is what we're built to do mechanically. Um, It's a nice reset. There was a great article that just came out in the New York Times about how anthropologists are recognizing that our brain development was stimulated by our walking. Um, So this is a great example of how in order to be a whole kind of balanced person, we need to move Mm -hmm. and walking is a great way to do that. So urban walking here, um, I've been in other places in the world and had opportunity to walk in deep woods. um, any opportunity I have to be in the woods is really a good one for me. Um, I love that term, that Japanese term, forest bathing. Um, and I feel that, that while I'm here in Cleveland, I'm happy in Cleveland, but it's, it takes effort for me to get out to the woods. And so I'm finding that there are certain stands or certain areas that I really like. We have great park systems here. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's easy to find a place to be with the trees, but I have preferences. Um, I like big old trees, I like quiet trails. Um, and I like kind of bigger pieces of land. So it's been really fun, even though I grew up in this area, coming back and reintroducing myself to the park lands mm-hmm. um, and really seeing how much we have to how many opportunities we have to go be in the woods quietly by ourselves and moving on dirt. Um, not walking on pavement is yeah. something I do go out of my way to try and do a few times a week because of just the impact and the compression activity that comes in our bodies from hitting pavement so much so i don't consider an urban walk the same quality of helpfulness as i do a forest walk
0: cool that makes me want to go on a hike after this <laughs> i was supposed to go on a hike today but it was too hot
1: I, so yes, <laughs> it's way too hot to do much today right, yeah
0: it's really hot. except swimming we should mm, all be in the pool I, know. <laughs> I, I would definitely take a dip right now um you mentioned forest bathing mm. can you go into that a little bit
1: I've been researching this because this is a term that's sort of shown up in a lot of the podcasts that I'm listening to. Um, apparently, it came out of Japan in the 1980s as a way to um, talk about the benefit of being in something bigger than us to help our nervous system reset that um, we're not the biggest thing on the totem pole, so to speak, that we have a place and that this place is supportive and in, in its Um, Truest sense. And so I just like the sense that I think the first person I heard talking about this was actually Julia Louis Dreyfus on a podcast. Um, And that, you know, I I just thought it was an interesting way of phrasing it. Mm -hmm. Um, The woods have always been important to me. And I recently found a bunch of photographs from high school where I was taking pictures in the woods. And today I get to hike in those same woods. So it's really. I'm kind of curious to find those, some of those same trails and take a different look at the trees 20 years on right. or 30 years on and just see how the forest has changed. Interesting. Um, I feel like that's a, it's a new consideration for me as I've been I've been trying to explore new trails, so there might be some benefit to going to see my old friends, too.
0: Very cool. We'll have to link to that podcast that you mm, mentioned mm-hmm. in the show notes. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's get into Role things. So before we get into how you got into rolfing i don't think a lot of my listeners are familiar with what it is and i'm i mean i had a session but i'm still learning about it so can you try to i know it's hard to explain but can you try to um just kind of explain what it is maybe who who discovered it why should someone go see a rolfer just kind of the basics
1: yeah the work uh, the word rolfing actually comes from a woman's name her last name Um, Her name was Ida Rolf, and she was a PhD in biochemistry. She earned that that certification in 1920 from Columbia, and through her work um, she identified connective tissue as an organ that kind of uh, responds to gravity and changes our shape and allows our parts to move independently, but coherently. And um, She also suggested that gravity was a major effector of human health. That means that our relationship to gravity how we organize our body how we stand our posture um, changes the way our body can function and so she was interested in what she called the line um, this upright balance um, in gravity so that we're constantly making micro movements to stay upright um, and becoming aware of those things I think that I've been in practice for about 14 years and in my experience so far people seem to hire rolfers when they know they're in pain and they're not satisfied by the other options they've tried that haven't met their goals Um, so the people who typically hire rolfers are pretty persistent and not agreeing that their pain has to be permanent Mm -hmm. Um, and that takes a certain character Um, and i early in my practice early in basic training actually one of my favorite teachers made a comment Um, to our group that rolfing isn't for everyone. And I was in that brand new, openly biased, you know, let's spread rolfing to every corner of the earth kind of mindset, which is normal when you learn something new and you're very passionate and excited about it. Um, But it really upset me. I mean, it really colored, like I carried it with me through the rest of my training. And I just puzzled over it. I couldn't figure it out. I respected him and he taught me so much and he was so embodied. He was so present with the work and had been practicing for 30 years at that point and I had no reason to doubt his words, but it didn't make sense to me. And I would say about five years ago, (laughs) I kind of got the point, um, that rolfing really isn't for everyone. That you have to be in a place in your life where you're willing to humble yourself to your body and what you don't know. And after, for many people when they hire a rolfer, it's because they've been living in pain for a long time. And when you've been living in chronic pain that no one helps you with, it changes the way you meet the world, it changes the way you're in a relationship, it really diminishes your quality of life. And so from that state to try something new and to be vulnerable to someone, mm-hmm. the only way I understand that expression is it, it, as a show of character. Right. Um, I think that's a amazing thing that i get to witness as part of my work and to me that's a big part of the mystery of how we heal why is it that some people choose to um, make themselves vulnerable and ask for help and other people just make other choices and live with their pain um so it humbles me to get to see that process and um what i think is interesting that rolf figured out through studying atomic medicine yoga osteopathy chiropractic um and physics that you know humans actually heal in the same way if we want to recover our good organization to gravity the process is the same for each of us and our ego doesn't like to hear that we're alike or that our homework might look like someone else's but the truth is that we need kind of the same things to heal and to be complete in ourselves and to live in these bodies in a graceful way in a happy way and you know I think that's worth pursuing. Mm-hmm.
0: So Rolfing could be for everyone if they're willing to
1: be vulnerable. Absolutely mm-hmm. and again you know the first time I heard of Rolfing I had been living with pain by that point for about 10 or 12 years and I think if you would, if I would heard about it sooner I'm not sure I would have tried it. Right. Um, I think that there's a growth point for clients that they're just kind of tired of themselves, in a way, of living in this unhappy place all the time. Um, You know, I listened to a podcast, another podcast recently, um, with Elizabeth Gilbert, the author, um, on a podcast called On Being. I
0: listened to that. It was really Isn't it terrific?
1: Mm -hmm. And um, I loved how she talked about that, you know, at some point she had to have her different selves shake each other's hands and make peace because Mm -hmm. they were making life for her so difficult that all of these kind of warring factions of herself wanting different um, outcomes or different um, soothing activities that may not be in her best interest and just how we enter relationships you know and that we can unfortunately cause some of our own pain and I think that if we're willing to be honest with ourselves then rolfing can become appealing. Um, and it turns out that if you're willing to be honest with yourself that's the hardest part of the work once you hire someone like me we just get to kind of discover that your body is a magnificent and safe place for you to be living and that it's really fun and Mm -hmm. that you know you get to go out and be a part of your life in a way that you maybe didn't feel you had access to an hour or two before and we don't have many of those experiential changes in our lives Um, kind of like how someone who gets glasses for the first time or Exactly. That's a great way to describe <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know to know that this is always available and we might drift away from that sense of feeling whole or feeling balanced but that it's we can always we can develop a pathway to find our way back to it pretty pretty simply great. without a lot of effort it turns out and that can be humbling because if you're really not dealing with pain What can you create in your life from happiness from health you know we have so much in our life and in our culture that comes from pain and suffering and for a long time i've just personally been curious about what a creative outlet looks from a state of health
0: yeah because a lot of i feel like not so recently but i think it's changing but i think a lot of people thought that to be creative and to be a great writer you had to be depressed or unhealthy.
1: And suffering and Mm -hmm. drunk and (laughs) kind of visiting with the extremes. And I think that we've seen what that produces and it's certainly interesting, you know, I love art. I was an art history major for a couple of years. Um, So I'm not denigrating that, but I'm just curious. I think humans have done a lot of that, so I'm curious what the other side looks like.
0: Yeah, exactly. Mm
1: -hmm. So you said
0: a lot of great stuff that I want to unpack, but I suppose before we get any further, maybe we should get into your journey of how you got into rolfing. And so I know you had an injury that kind of propelled you into that, so do you want to walk us through that?
1: I did, yeah. In 1989, I was a senior in high school, and I picked up an empty book bag and something pop in my low back and I went off to class like a good girl and couldn't get out of my seat at the end of the class. Um, Couldn't really feel my leg, couldn't move um, and had never had an experience like this in my body before. Um, I had been a swimmer for a long time, um, was fit and couldn't move. Um, So I got to go home from school that day, senioritis was not my problem Um, and by the time I got home um, my leg was pretty much paralyzed and A few days later, by the time I got to a physician, we learned that I had completely herniated a disc in my lumbar spine, and it cut off all communication or function of the sciatic nerve down my left leg. The sciatic nerve is the nerve that um, actually runs your leg, um, and it goes all the way down to your foot. So, um, I had just turned 18, I was a senior in high school, and I was partly paralyzed. So I had surgery at university hospitals in Cleveland, came out of it with... um, the ability to stand on my leg, which I did not have before surgery. So that was definitely a successful aspect. Um, But I also came out with foot drop and constant sciatic pain, asthma, and a severe allergy to cats. And those last two things I had never had before. (laughs) So um, doctors couldn't really tell me why I suddenly had asthma after surgery or why I was suddenly allergic to cats. And I did the short-term physical therapy, but it didn't make any change in my body. Um, and that was that Mm -hmm. so um, I suffered a lot and I didn't really understand why there wasn't better options like it seemed to me like if I bent, bent over and picked something up Shouldn't I be able to be helped that didn't seem like an extreme thing? I wasn't in a car going a high rate of speed or I didn't jump off a building yeah. or you know blow myself up in a big way So I just it was I was not necessarily a happy person. I probably wasn't so fun to be around um, Pain really changes our capacity to be in the world. So I'm not defending myself. I'm explaining mm-hmm. um, bad behavior quite frankly and so um I moved to Alaska a few years later and um, had as many adventures as I could from a seated position, so lots of kayaking and paddling and that kind of thing, but um, not a lot of hiking or carrying heavy packs because I couldn't. Um, And then in about 1999, someone close to me suggested that I get acupuncture um, to help my breathing and she was concerned about my limping, she thought it was getting worse. And she suggested I see someone in town that was very helpful. And indeed, he was. In our first visit, he was, this was the first time I had someone explain to me the relationship between the disc that I blew out and asthma. So the acupuncturist helped me over about six months with nutrition advice and acupuncture to rehabilitate me from asthma. So I don't have asthma anymore. Wow. Um, and then he said the rest of my problems were structural and I needed to get. Rolfed. And I'd never heard that term. I made a joke about it. Um, and he gave me the name of a particular practitioner. I called her. And in our first session, she didn't talk to me a lot about the work. She said it was body work and that it I, she would help me get in better relationship with gravity, which I'm pretty sure made me laugh because I was pretty twisted at that point. I could only stand on one leg for long periods of time, and I was just constantly in pain. So to have a good relationship with gravity just seemed um, beyond my... Um, range of reach, um, quite frankly, so um, she put me on the table, um, her touch did not hurt, but the tissue in my left leg that she touched definitely suddenly carried sensation that I hadn't felt before, um, so that certainly caught my attention while she was working, and then when I got off the table, I had some control over my left foot for the first time, um, since '89 and. I did actually feel straighter, I felt taller, I felt like I was in a better relationship with gravity and I could, I could breathe better, I was conscious of being able to breathe better. And um, that really astounded me, that first of all, this woman, that these people, my acupuncturist in the role her, knew that these, this way of working with the body was fruitful, and that I was 29 or 30, and that this was my first introduction to the idea that humans can heal in this way. And so I became very angry after that session because I felt like ignorance was really something that had changed the course of my life. And so it took me a while to just do my own personal work of dealing with my injury, even that many years after it, just just to deal with the impact of it. And so I got Rolfed, I was so happy. Um, I went to her for several months and got out of pain. Um, So it's been probably since 2000, that I've had sciatic nerve pain. It's just not something I experience anymore. Um, My leg doesn't work as well as um, I would like, I'll be honest. Um, I still can't cross-country ski. Um, The lateral push of my foot is not very strong yet, but my recovery continues and it's progressive. And um, this summer for the first time, I discovered that my rehabilitative efforts have been Successful and that I can, for the first time, wear ballet shoes wow. without having the ballet shoe fall off my left foot. Cool. So I'm very excited about this. So, yeah. um, And I think, you know, a lot of times people hire me um, and tell me that they've had injuries from 20 or 30 years ago that will never heal. And, you know, my experience is, is normal for how a human can heal, that we carry these injuries with us until we release them. And, you know, just because it happened a long time ago doesn't mean you can't keep making progress or keep getting better, um, even after you've lived with it for a while. And, you know, I like to to remind people that there's more happening in our bodies than science can explain. Mm -hmm. And it's not in your best interest to close the door on the possibility, especially if you're living in chronic pain. Wow. Mm
0: -hmm. So it was from 1989 to 2000 Mm -hmm. that you were living in that much pain?
1: My 20s basically my entire 20s yeah so it changed the course of my life Mm -hmm. and I can't say specifically that I was going to go do this or go do that there's always you know I don't like to play the regret game I don't think that's a good good self-relationship to be in Um, but it certainly changed who I am
0: yeah what do you think although it was a hard time what do you think was an advantage of that time that you maybe learned from that time what was something that you took away from it
1: Um, I learned that when you look at someone you don't know what they're feeling Mm -hmm. Um, I remember thinking a lot about how if I looked at myself in the mirror I couldn't tell that my leg felt like it was on fire and just really puzzling over that that if I go to the grocery store if I walk down the street someone else could be feeling as bad as I am someone could be feeling worse and you can't tell and I just think pain it just gave me a long period of time, unfortunately, to sort of meditate on the nature of pain, and that's I don't wish that on anyone. Um, I think people deal with pain in different ways. I certainly spent some time masking it, and that didn't work either. Um, I still had pain, and then felt like I couldn't meet the environment around me or meet the world around me. So that wasn't satisfying to me either. Um, You know, and I think that there's a difference in my experience in my body and hiring rolfers and practitioners of all kinds to pursue my own health, I notice a difference between care providers who have had an experience in their lives of chronic long-term pain and have come out of it through their own effort and their own kind of humbling to the process. And there are other practitioners who have gracefully lived in happy, healthy bodies and have never experienced long-term pain. And I think those are two different types of providers. And for people who have chronic pain, you know, if I look at the providers that helped me the most, they also happen to be people who recovered themselves from long-term chronic pain. And so I do get that it informs my work and my capacity as a practitioner. I'm glad to turn it into something useful, but, um, you know, I still use it as kind of a main point of my practice of compassion, just like moving around the world, Um, you know, bad behavior always comes from pain
0: right that's totally. just
1: it's true in us it's true in animals it's true in children um, and our refusal to acknowledge our refusal to to acknowledge that and meet that pain and just witness it with love just witness it with you know god that really sucks you yeah. know sometimes that can do enough to change the momentum of it so that a person can kind of regain regain their footing and you know instead we isolate ourselves in our pain yeah it's a hard thing to see.
0: Definitely. So uh, it's very hard to explain what rolfing is, and there's not a lot of language around that. So is there any progress happening to develop language around
1: it? Oh, that's such a great question. So rolfing is a somatic practice, which means that it's a body body practice. And we just don't have language connected with our body. Like, Can you talk about in words what, it, what the experience of dancing is like? Right. <laughs> can we talk about what running is like or any kind of physical um, movement? Mm-hmm. Right. And can science explain those experiences? Not really. Not. <laughs> right. So this is where rolfing comes in, because we provide the experience of health. Um, and so there's not a lot of language. And that makes it a marketing nightmare, <laughs> just from a straightforward kind of communication and education standpoint. Um Feldenkrais and Alexander and Rolfing are considered the three kind of somatic practices. And so we do share some language about embodiment, flow state, um, felt sense is something that we talk a lot about in my sessions. Just what do your knees feel like when you're standing? Do you, Where do you feel tension in your body, even if you don't feel pain? Um, helping people notice the communication from their body is a big part of Rolfing. And... Ideally, that embodies them or kind of empowers them to become better stewards of how they live in their bodies so that they're more aware of that communication that's always happening. And if it's not pain, there still can be something valuable that your body's trying to say to you and through an experience or through a sensation. And so rolfing and the somatic practices are great places for people to start to discover themselves in this way to learn that their body does have a separate conversation going on all the time and we have an endless opportunity to increase our awareness with that Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah wow um so can you talk about maybe how we can prevent how to use rolfing as prevention, not just going there when you have an injury, but before, and maybe even how children can use it mm, so nice. that we yeah. don't mm-hmm. you know, get to these points.
1: Well, and you're getting really to what Rolf, Dr. Rolf herself wanted. She wanted us working on kids. She wanted us working with people to help them prevent injuries. And actually, I got rolfed yesterday. Mm. Um, a rolfer came down from Michigan to work with me. We traded. And mm-hmm. she shared with me she's been rolfing since eighty one, um, and she shared with me that she's had a longstanding belief that um, for all the people that have hip replacements middle in life, if they had gotten involved by the time they were thirty, and I agree with her, we wonder if they would still need a hip replacement, right? That, um, and the reason I'm bringing that up to your question is that you know our maintenance, our ongoing functional health, does inform how we're going to age. And um, babies and children, until they were about 25 actually, were much more adaptable for healing and for maintaining a good relationship with gravity because our cranial bones haven't um, ossified or become hard yet. That doesn't happen until we're about 25. So until then, people have a much greater opportunity to change or heal from big stuff, little stuff, um, feet that... When we're born, if feet are pointing in the wrong direction, um, arm that gets caught in the birthing process and a clavicle problem, those are very common. Um, Babies getting stuck during certain points of labor and delivery. Um, All of those problems actually could be handled quite easily with informed and highly trained practitioners like Rolfers to help the body, help the baby's body just take its shape in gravity effortlessly so that the diaphragm and everything, <clears throat> all the parts of the baby can, can work in tandem with each other. Um, I think oftentimes what we see is that babies come in with trauma that isn't addressed and then their parts work out of tandem. So they have weird rhythms, breath is weird, that kind of stuff. So Western medicine doesn't have a lot of good options for that and it causes a lot of really suffering for the families. Um, and so um, that's certainly one way I, for all of my practice if I work with a woman who becomes pregnant um, I invite her and the baby in the first time that they feel ready to receive a treatment after baby's arrival mm-hmm. um, and I work on both of them separately um, and it's a profound session both for mom and baby and for everybody in the family and <clears throat> um, I don't see that I'm going to stop that anytime soon yeah. Um Birthing is a really big deal and the cranial distortion that we experience coming through the birth canal, the diaphragm movement coming into gravity um, We don't think about these things as being such a big impact in a being, but they're really significant events and Touch is really a great tool to help ease all that. So that's one way that kids um, can be helped In general, I think that um, people who are pretty aware of themselves, athletes, um, professional athletes of any shape or form, I know someone who just coined a term called um, industrial athletes, firefighters and first responders, Mm -hmm. folks like that, people who use their bodies professionally. Um, Those folks, I have a big part in my practice because they really, they rely on their bodies and they rely on that internal felt sense for their work. Um, if you feel off in your body and you're a firefighter, or if you feel off in your body and you're a dancer, um, you're gonna have a different work day, right? It's not mm-hmm. gonna be as fun, it's right. not gonna be as successful. Yeah. And in one case, you might endanger someone. That's <laughs> um, And so um, bo- body work is really well used as a maintenance option for people who do rely on their bodies in a daily way to earn their income and to do something helpful to other people. Um, and you know to, to keep keep your connective tissue moving. There's a lot of um, talk today about fascia and connective tissue. And recently there was an article about how it's the a new organ. We've discovered a new organ. <clears throat> Rolfer's, of course, disagree with that. Um, some of us have known about it for a while, um, and really we all have. But A lot of the cadaver work and a lot of the anatomy work that's been done throughout human history has just ignored the white stuff, and they've been looking at, with good reason, kind of the big parts, right? And now we're to a place in human history where we know what the big parts do. (laughs) Now we need to know what the the less known parts do. And so, um, you know, if you hunt, if you've ever dressed an animal after you know, in preparing it for eating it, you know what connective tissue is. If you eat meat, you know what connective tissue is. And I don't want to upset any of your listeners. I don't want to oh. be gross, but <laughs> this is this is part of life, yeah. it turns out. And that connective tissue fabric is one piece of fabric. It grows out of the bones when we form. And um, part of its job is to absorb force. So if you have a very active lifestyle where you're a runner, you're a weightlifter, you're compressing yourself for your work, if you're a dancer, if you're um, I have oil rig, rig workers that work very intense jobs, and at the end of the day, you do feel compressed. You have kind of um, asked a lot of your body, and getting that connective tissue to stay hydrated, making sure that the communication and hydration bed is op- operating at the highest capacity it can um, is a different way to talk about our bodies, but it turns out it's the experience of health that, that we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's through this web of connective tissue.
0: Okay, yeah, I want to talk about that a little bit more, but I want to go back to something we were talking about before, and I just have a question. Um, I'm not sure if you can answer this, but do you think that um, babies, do they learn these bad habits, or are they natural instinct?
1: Oh, that's a great question. So, um... There are two things, uh, two ways I'll answer that question. The first way is that a lot of our movement habits are mimicry. Um, So when we learn how to walk, we actually mimic the people moving around us. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes, um, if you think back into the life of a family, by the time kiddo is learning to walk, mom or dad or someone else connected with the parents um, who's around kiddo, grandparents, aunts and uncles, whoever, um, probably has low back pain or a gimpy knee or something like that and is probably moving not well. Mm -hmm. And so that becomes part of the family pattern that the kid embodies um, as kiddo is learning to walk. Um, The other way I'll kind of answer the question differently is that epigenetics is this Mm -hmm. new kind of field within science, looking at genetics. And 10 or 15 years ago, we were told that we could be the victim of one bad gene, right? If you have one bad gene, you're going to have this outcome. That never made sense to me, just instinctively. Uh, that's not the best kind of way to pursue solid information, instinct only, but it just never resonated with me. So the study of epigenetics is studying groups of genes and how groups of genes can be influenced by their environment to stimulate certain behaviors in the being. Now this instinctively makes much more sense to me, that it would be a group of genes, that it would be stimulated by many things, including the environment. And that we're not a victim of this process. But it might be useful to know about it um, so that we can make informed choices about what environments we put ourselves in. um, And also um, to tell ourselves more positive stories um, Mm -hmm. that we can heal from things. Um,
0: What do you mean by telling ourselves more positive stories?
1: You know, I think that if we've experienced trauma in life, emotional or physical or environmental, you know, you could have seen a a violent event in your neighborhood. You could have seen a violent car crash, Mm -hmm. right? It didn't affect you. Your property wasn't damaged in any way, but it really messed you up in a way that you can't express. Those kinds of traumas, um, unfortunately, there's some segment of, of Western medicine that is telling us that those traumas are permanent. And it's really... They're never permanent. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the stories we tell us are really powerful. The stories we tell ourselves, that internal dialogue we have in our head. So if you're walking around the world in a body that really is hard to live in because it's painful and it doesn't feel like it has enough space on some level, um, and you're telling yourself a story about not being valuable or not having access or not knowing where to go, those stories all are about, like, disconnection, Mm -hmm. right? and that isn't going to help you get better but if you are able to tell yourself a story of well you know if i go sit in the forest right i might be able to feel a little bit better if i stimulate this part of myself that is going to make me feel better maybe i'll feel better right and it gives us a pathway or kind of a breadcrumb trail out of our pain and i think internally you know, if I tell myself a story that yeah something really bad happened and it really messed me up, but I also know it's not permanent. I know that I can change from it, and that I, as your insightful question earlier was, how did your suffering kind of inform mm-hmm. your life? Um, you know, the Japanese also have this great idea that if you break a piece of porcelain, you repair it with gold, you make it more beautiful for the injury, and I think that that's that's a good way to think about our injuries and it's a way to get out of this victim mentality you know bad things happen good things happen you're more powerful if you realize that it's your response to these events and you can tell as many different stories as you want about the same series of events and telling a positive version is in your best interest it's in your neighbor's best interest Mm -hmm. you know
0: so what are some practices that you use to stay away from those negative stories and did um during those 10 years, during your 20s, mm-hmm. how you were probably telling yourself these stories. Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah and I was not in a good marriage. I mean, it was with someone that I, you know, was, it was not a healthy relationship. And um, both for what I brought to it and for what he brought to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you had asked me at that time, um, I would not have been able to use that language. I would not have had that self-awareness at all. And I probably wouldn't have even told you that I was in pain. But my behavior was really bad in some ways. I was just difficult to be around. And, um, you know, at that time, I watched a lot of television, I smoked a lot of pot. Um, I was in Alaska, where even back then it was technically legal. Um, And, you know, none of those things really made a difference. And I was lucky enough to be involved with a group of women who were older than me, and we would go hiking once a week. And so these women were um, up to 35, 40 years older than me. And so listening to them talk about their marriages, listening to them talk about raising their babies, listening, them to, listening to them discuss their growth as women and kind of watching their mother's age and their own process of kind of coming into themselves, I realized that there was something bigger that I could aim for even if I didn't know exactly what it was, but I didn't have to settle for this. And I was the most unhappy person in the group by a lot. And so looking back on it, I didn't know at the time, like what a good general act of kindness um, they were giving me to have me join their group um, because I was not happy and I wasn't always easy to get along with. and. I probably ruined a few hikes, like just by being the pain in the ass in the group. But they also showed me that I didn't have to settle for this way of living, yeah. and even if I didn't know what to move towards, I didn't have to settle for this. Right. And that, you know, I think that's a conversation that women can be having with each other at every point of life, at every pretty much every kind of interaction, and it's something that I've really tried to carry forward out of that time. That. You don't have to know, you don't have to have the roadmap. That's to some degree the ego trick that yeah. you need to know what you need to do. Right. Um, you don't, you have to not settle for this mm-hmm. and just do something else. And for me, it was ending a marriage, it was leaving him. Like I physically left the house and no, it was really hard and I didn't know what I was gonna do, but I did it. Cause you know, at the end of the day, we can make money, we can participate, we can take care of ourselves in a way that's not that hard. It might not be what we want, but we can take care of ourselves. Yeah and it might be worth it right I mean it's
0: I was talking on another podcast episode with someone about how if you're afraid to do anything if you're if you're always going to settle for that just because it feels safe you're no one's ever going to move forward where there wouldn't be all these great women-owned businesses and
1: absolutely yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. and all the women who have come before us Mm -hmm. Um, and the other thing is that our lives change we have different chapters in our lives and so even if you're not available to do the thing that you know you're here to do because you're raising babies or you're in school or you're Mm -hmm. taking care of someone in your family um, there can be another chapter life is actually long and if you're honest with yourself and you have the courage to act on whatever rudimentary truth that comes from your belly, um, you'll probably do okay. Yeah. You know, you'll probably find like-minded people along the way too to support you in that and Mm -hmm. to kind of cheer you on. And so, you know, I had a lot of really good women in my life back then. And not all of them had easy lives. Um, But the kind of sisterhood of just witnessing each other and having a community of of having a safe place to express our concerns or express our frustration, and then go back into our daily lives. I think that can't be understated, that value of community. And, you know, I went to girls' school, so maybe that's why I'm more inclined to have, to be really, feel connected or particularly supported by groups of women, but... I think that we also communicate differently than men and I have a lot of men friends and living in Alaska for 20 years obviously you have to sort of know how to be a guy (laughs) in some ways Um, but the language that women have among each other when we're private um, when we're in a safe place I think is really profound and I think it's something that um, we could use more of.
0: Definitely Um, there's a lot of things popping up around Cleveland the girl that I just interviewed is the founder of local girl gang Clee. I don't oh. know if you've heard of it no it's um well she has a website and it's kind of a directory for all Ooh. women-owned businesses Great. and then she has networking events awesome. but not your typical networking um just for women to get together and yeah I think people are craving that more and more mm-hmm. and yeah a lot of stuff is popping up around that oh there was another thing A podcast that I listened to and I'll link to it Um, this girl was interviewing an author that wrote a book called text me when you get home Mm -hmm. and I I really want to read it I haven't read it yet but they talked a lot about um, women friendships Mm -hmm. and how important Mm -hmm. they are and um, it was I think back in the 50s like you women really didn't have time for that. They didn't allow themselves to have that. Right. They were taking care of their kids and, you know, cooking dinner for their husbands and everything. So, yeah, it's, it's true. It's really important.
1: It is. Um, and you know, I talked to a girlfriend I hadn't spoken to in a months and, you know, we had a 15 minute conversation by the phone recently and, you know, I'm, I'm sure she could say the same thing. We both feel a lot better. Yeah. Um, just, it wasn't a deep, you know, heartfelt, soul sharing conversation but it was a connection and it was one we hadn't had in a while and it made us both feel better for it and you know those friendships are precious but also to me that's what informs my health Um, it's not whether or not I'm following a doctor's orders it's how am I attending to my own needs Mm -hmm. and being able to recognize the difference between do I need to take a walk do I need to talk to someone should I eat some food should I take a nap and you know this is where the felt sense Kind of personal exploration is kind of endless, right? Um, When I first got to that acupuncturist, he was the first person that helped me understand that what I ate affected how I felt. Now, this sounds like such an embarrassingly simple statement that I just made to you, but I really didn't get that Mm -hmm, in a personal way. Mm -hmm. Um, And from there, I, you know, it's been a long time of continuing that exploration, and I'm not anywhere near the end of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what I like about getting to live in this body, you know. It's an endless adventure if we allow it.
0: Right, exactly. All right, let's get back to fascia, <laughs> I guess. There was something that you said on another podcast, um, and it was, there's nothing in the body that has no job.
1: <laughs> so maybe you
0: can unpack that a little
1: bit. Yeah, that's great. Um, so if you, dear listener, will join me in this <laughs> moment by taking your two hands and putting them on either side of your ribcage, just touch your okay. rib cage okay now like just notice how far apart your hands are mm-hmm. now bring those hands in front of you at that same distance yeah okay that's not very much space right right do you know what's in there no do you know what's between your hands when they're touching your ribs like that no. so <laughs> this is a place that i think rolf wanted us to be educators first and this is a great great way to start this conversation. It's really helpful to just know what's inside of yourself, like to understand how you're built, right? And between your hands, when you're touching your ribcage like that, there's no empty space. Mm -hmm. There's room for air so that you can breathe, so you can inhale and exhale, Mm -hmm. but there's actually no empty space anywhere in your body and everything inside of your skin has a job. Um, So the idea that Western medicine has looked at connective tissue or fascia as filler or unimportant is really kind of a stunning <laughs> statement um, that, you know, we can have this amazing infrastructure and assume that a part that is in it wouldn't be necessary. Um, a lot of um, the rhythm of the rolfing work actually comes from some of the patterns in nature, um, and nature doesn't build anything accidentally or without purpose, um, and we are built the same way. Right. So. This idea that um, there's tissue in your body that isn't necessary is not true. Um, and I think a lot of times Western medicine benefits from offering surgeries that might not get very much done mm-hmm. um, with this misunderstanding about how we're built because we're not really sure if tissue is necessary or not, yeah. right? We're not sure what we can live about because we don't really understand ourselves.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting, yeah, okay, so... Um
1: and I guess I'll say oh. one more thing, if oh, that's okay. Yeah, a- go no. ahead, no. Um, Connective tissue does fill the space, so if you get a deep cut or if a surgeon opens you for a good reason that you've agreed to, your body, body's connective tissue is actually not going to have gotten that message, and so it's going to try and fill the hole. Um, so that's where we get scar tissue. It's connective tissue. Um, if you have joints that are collapsed or not very spacious anymore, as we age, that happens. Um, you'll wear away some of the connective tissue through the joint, and we call that arthritis. Um, So, connective tissue gives us this opportunity to kind of regulate how our system functions from within without thinking about it in a way that Western medicine doesn't fully understand yet. But really, connective tissue makes sure there's no space um, because space is a threat to your health. You can't function if there's air bubbles inside of your thorax or inside of your organ tissue. If there's air in your veins you die mm-hmm. like we can't have unaccounted for space yeah um and so connective tissue i mean lately i've been thinking about connected connective tissue is like stem cells because like the stem cell of the mature body because connective tissue will repair most things um, if you tear a muscle but you can still kind of use it yes with pain but you tear a muscle and you're told to limit your movements, you're still able to move because connective tissue is supporting that injured muscle movement and making it possible for you to do something at all. Um, So I think that the opportunity we have is to really understand that connective tissue is helping us more than we think. It's more involved in our general function and we really haven't had a proper introduction to it yet. But one good way to start thinking about it is that it fills all the space in between all the parts you know. Mm
0: -hmm. That's helpful, very helpful, interesting. Um can you talk a little bit about the mind-body connection in Rolfing?
1: Sure. Um that was basically her a primary question that Dr. Rolf was pursuing, um, along with many of the people of her time, like Rudolf Steiner, who developed biodynamic gardening and Waldorf education, Marie Montessori, who developed Montessori education, Feldenkrais Alexander. Uh, Pilates, all of these people were looking at after World War One you know we did things to each other that maybe we haven't ever done before Um, and they were interested in looking at this question of how to build whole people so that we don't do this to each other again. So Rolf was a biochemist so she was interested in using the best of science to explain how we're built and how we function optimally Um, but to her this mind-body relationship was is pretty much the primal underpinning of the work we're balancing that relationship between the mind and the body and you know back in the time of her life she died in 1979 we we were more embodied back then in a way we didn't have computer screens we didn't have media the way we do today we didn't have the communication the disembodied communication opportunities, right? You can be on the phone. You can be FaceTiming with someone. You can be walking down the street in a crowd of people talking to someone across the planet. And so your embodiment during those conversations is hard for your pack to register if you're walking in a crowd. um, You're communicating kind of two different things, and that's not necessarily healthy for the person or in terms of coherence or for the audience or the, the environment around. And so you know, Rolf was really smart in that she recognized that connective tissue does allow us to change shape um, through gravity, through our movement habits, and that in the future she could not anticipate what kind of injuries humans would have. She couldn't anticipate what kind of movement habits would be having. So she didn't know what kind of healing techniques would need to meet the goals of rolfing. So she basically Define the the work as a series of principles, and opened up the opportunity for us to use different techniques to meet those principles. And so, you know, over time, we see this kind of natural growth of Rolfing, this natural change of how we talk about the mind body relationship, how we talk about ourselves. You know, thirty years ago, we didn't talk about felt sense. Um, so part of this whole conversation is really just acknowledging that we keep changing and growing through time as we get to know things and learn different aspects of human health and science improves but also the paradox for all of this to me is that you know we're really no better at, at helping each other with this mind-body relationship there still hasn't been this flood of bigger education coming from more communities than just the somatic community to help people balance themselves between their body and their mind and. It's too bad. You Mm -hmm. know, um, athletes have a certain kind of mind body relationship, but in some cases, athletes are commanding their bodies, right? They're not necessarily listening to feedback from their bodies. It's a one way conversation. And what Rolf and her contemporaries were interested in is a two way conversation that you're willing to receive the information from your body and maybe move accordingly. Um, You know, on my table, when people are working with me, They often get into a state where they feel like they're gonna fall asleep, but they don't. Um, They're aware of my touch, they're aware of where I physically am around them, but um, they're not awake, Mm -hmm. they're not talking, they don't Mm -hmm. want to talk. Um, I call this the groovy space, it's a very technical description. Mm -hmm. Um, And really what's happening there is that their cognitive brain is getting a break and their body brain and I are having a conversation. And I've had a number of people over the years come back to me and say that that experience allowed them to meditate in their personal life, that they, because they had been there once, they could get there again. Wow. And so through my practice, I've really kind of recognized that in many cases, we need to teach each other these experiences. We're pack animals. We're supposed to do this stuff together. Yeah. We're not supposed to be sitting silently in meditation alone, right? right for hours and hours. I don't think that that is necessarily the best um, use of your human form. Um, And I don't think that creates a lot of balance. I think that movement, nutrition, and touch are the three pieces that can create a balanced state for a human. And you're going to mix those up however you need. But those are kind of three key ingredients to -hmm. to what a person needs to keep themselves together um, and operating pretty well.
0: Yeah, there's two things I want um, to... Unpack with that. One thing is, how can people start to listen to their
1: mm-hmm. um, body, brain, mm-hmm. and not let their ego get mm-hmm. in the way of that? Um, part of it is just discipline. <laughs> like, yeah. I don't have a better answer for you. This is a practice for every single one of us, including mm-hmm. me. So I have figured none of this out. Yeah. Um, I'm not a master, I'm mm-hmm. just a person. Um, you know, a big go to, and we hear about this a lot, is just tracking your breath, right? Um, just noticing, are you breathing? Um, that one gets a little overused, I think. Um, so I like to invite people to notice their feet. Um, if you're wearing shoes, notice what your shoe feels like on your foot. The first time I was asked this, it kind of broke my brain. Mm-hmm. Like I was, I'm supposed to feel what? Right. You want me to feel my sock on my foot? Why would I ever do that? It turns out there's lots of really good reasons that I can't necessarily put in words for you. Yeah. Um, And so playing with yourself like that um, there's a lot of just assumption that if we're gonna talk about touching ourselves it has to be sexual and really that's a pretty narrow um, part of our relationship with ourselves Mm -hmm. right we're much bigger than that and I like it when people are willing to touch their feet touch their knees touch their arms um, lay in bed if they're having trouble falling asleep and just kind of do an internal scan Feel your space, which again can be kind of a earth shattering way of considering yourself that you're spacious. But again, if we go back to feeling our rib cage with our hands, can you become aware of the space in yourself between those two hands? That's a really simple way to calm down. There are times when I'm sitting in traffic at the magic hour trying to get around one side of town to the other, um, and I will just put my hands on my legs and just have the experience of feeling my hands feel my legs and then have the experience of having my legs feel my hands, which sounds like a silly thing, but it keeps me present. It puts me back in my breath. Um, I'm not upset about anything. Um, I would guess that if we had a blood or urine analysis before and after, you would see lower cortisol levels and Mm -hmm. lower stress hormones that it's a way of resetting ourselves. And one of the messages that I carry to my clients pretty much in every session is that we have this system on board all the time. No one's ever told you how to use it. And that's what I love about what Rolf and her contemporaries yeah. figured out, that um, they brought science to this, this kind of exploration of first, how were we built, but also what's already on board that will make our lives better. Right right what 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 can i use within myself and what can i evoke in my neighbors and in the people closest to me to keep us in this happy space um, that might be our only birthright it might be I, yeah. don't know. I don't
0: know yeah so it's just really important for people to get comfortable with their body and
1: it's listen true to their body. and you know even if you've had trauma or bad experiences where you're just terrified of being in your body you're right you shouldn't do that alone You should do that with someone, Mm -hmm. right? This this idea that we can heal ourselves is not entirely true. Um, Physics tells us that the witness changes the the observed, the thing you're looking at. Just by looking at something, you're changing it. And I do think that that's what happens in healing. You need someone to witness you to allow yourself to fully heal. So this idea that you can heal your own trauma is bullshit. The idea that you're stuck with your own trauma is bullshit. And, you know, truthfully... It can feel frustrating to try and find the quote-unquote right practitioner to help you. But um, taking a step, being with someone, making yourself vulnerable to that person, and speaking up when something in the moment doesn't feel right to you is actually part of the process of healing trauma. So you don't need the right person. It's more or less... Your willingness to be in that moment with mm-hmm. a person that's going to allow people to heal. And so a lot of times I hear that people are interested in rolfing, but they've had a major trauma or a sexual assault or a physical assault in some way, and they just don't think that rolfing will ever be for them. And it might be that we need to talk for a while. It might be that they need to do some other kinds of experiences before they can come in and work with me. But the idea that that you can't move forward is just never true right it's just never true mm-hmm.
0: it's just something that we've been told
1: but and it's yeah. something that you know our fear brain creates for us yeah. you know um stillness is a response that we have mm-hmm.
0: it, yeah it seems like a very simple concept but it's It. this is the
1: yeah. art and crazy making of being human <laughs> like this is why it's so hard right and you know i was raised catholic i'm not a practicing catholic and i work on people from Very different backgrounds and I say this very often that you know this thing that we're talking about this how do we get out of our own crazy brain how do we get out of our own ego how do we stay in feeling good with ourselves you know I think this is why Jesus and others had to come tell us how to love because it's really hard and I think that a lot of times the act of loving ourselves is the experience that is just the primary one we're missing you know we can blame our parents we can blame our upbringing And honestly, at the end of the day, if you're not loving yourself, none of those other relationships matter. It's
0: true, yeah. What's the point?
1: (laughs) It's true. And no one is hurting you as much as you can hurt you. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that's an innately humbling thought. You know, Mm -hmm. you have to sort of have a willing ego to let yourself get there.
0: Yeah. Wow. Um, So it looks like we're getting up on an hour Oh my goodness. It went by so fast. (laughs) But I just want to... First, before we do our little flashcard oh, yeah. game, mm-hmm. I want to kind of walk, just have, have, can you walk us through what a session sure. would be like, um, what should a client expect, what, sh- how should they prepare, and then what happens at the session?
1: Yeah, um, let's see, clients, I invite clients to come in well hydrated and fed. <laughs> Sometimes we come in for body work thinking we have to be starving ourselves, and rolfing is not one of those body works. Um, So I like people to come in wearing comfortable clothes and having some food on board, it takes fuel to heal. Um, I ask the client to lay on a massage table with a bolster or a pillow or whatever they need to be comfortable. It's really important that the person is comfortable on the table. I can work with people on their side or in different positions, but it's up to the client to guide me. This is actually a team sport and so I need you to tell me what you need. Um, And that can be hard sometimes for people. Um, and that's okay. It's my job to help with that. Um, and then I use listening tools, which means we have these nonverbal communication experiences in our lives. And I, my work includes some tools that allow me to listen to that information. So it makes it easy for both of us. Your body has the wisdom we both need for me to help you. Um, so this is kind of what we were getting to earlier, that mind-body relationship. Yeah. and. Um, whether or not people are conscious of this, um, the body shows me where I can be of the most help. What is ready for change? So when I touch there, people tend tend to get relaxed. They're often um, they often tell me that that's the place that they've had pain, or that's the, the spot that's you know the place that's been driving them crazy for a long period of time. I don't know how I know. The body just shows me, and I just mm-hmm. trust that process. It happens over and over. Um, I don't mean to make people nervous by that, but I think a lot of times it's the first time people have experienced something like that, so it can be a little frightening. And I just go slow and talk people through it. And again, this is supposed to be a good thing. This is not supposed to be um, hurtful or painful in any way or uncomfortable. Um, So as we said earlier, people can get into that groovy space where they're getting relaxed and there's a little bit of communication, but maybe verbal communication, but maybe not much and i work on different parts of the body so i might be working on a foot and you're feeling it in your opposite shoulder i might be working on your si joint and you're feeling it in your opposite foot all of those things are normal experiences and it's very fruitful for a person to just meet themselves in these conditions you don't know necessarily how you're put put together from the inside and i've had a number of people say over the years that my hands are like a lights um, so that when I'm touching them, they can see, feel, they become part aware of themselves in a way they can't when I'm not touching. And that's just pure self-education. There's just usefulness in every direction from that kind of experience. Um, and then the session, the table work usually ends up after about 40 or 50 minutes. That's about all the input the nervous system can take. And then I have people roll to their side first and then sit up slowly and then stand up. And at that point, people know something's different. Right, yeah. What was your experience like standing up?
0: I felt like I was floating maybe a foot above the ground. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And and you weren't. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Ralphie's cool. It's not that cool. Right.
0: (laughs) So what, I don't know if this is something that you can even really explain, but why why does that sensation happen?
1: Um, So proprioception is the really fancy word that we use to describe the system we have on board about how we know where we are in space are you sitting up are you laying down Um, is there something near to you Um, is the flooring or the footing that you're standing on flat Um, all of that information comes from our proprioception and so we have these special nerve cells in our big joints and um, that's the information relay system basically for what's happening around us and what our orientation is to the world And so um, if you've ever gotten into a rental car, right, it's probably different than your car Mm -hmm. and you first can't see where the edges are, right, and the first little bit that you drive the car you're very uncomfortable and um, almost magically, um, after you drive it one or two times, you know where the bumpers are, you're not so um, concerned about how big you are or how small you are for your navigating well. And that's the same process that happens in our bodies. Um, in a rolfing session, connective tissue um, eases the strain patterns uh, like fabric. Um, we kind of iron, for lack of a better term, we smooth out the connective tissue. So the places that were folded before are not. And so that's putting less strain and whatever those folds are connected to. And so if your joints are now under less strain, which happens pretty much after every session, it takes your nervous system a minute to remap way you're built to remap those relationships there's more spaciousness there's more distance between your joints so you need a minute to go oh wait here I am and so I have people move around the room I touch people um, during that part of the session we're not done when people get off the table there's still more work to do to facilitate this proprioceptive engagement and it's a natural um, process that I just have to facilitate Mm -hmm. and you don't have to worry about Um, and so Things like tracking, things like knee bends, um, eye movement, breath work, um, awareness about how your feet are hitting the floor. These are all things that can help your body kind of go, oh, right, here we are. Everything is working together, and look, it's working better, and it's working better in a way that now my brain registers. So this is the experience of the body working better, and now the mind kind of realizing that, yes, that, that indeed is true. I can feel that too, and that's how we get this embodiment experience. That's how we get this kind of whole kind of result where people leave the space going wow i feel great yeah. and you know and they that feeling continues um and you know we're all structures in gravity we all come in and out of this place and the goal is not to get here and stay there that's not realistic at all the goal is to get there kind of cultivate your best opportunity to stay there for as long as possible with good relationship with yourself and the world around you and your activities and the people around you um, and then when you feel like you're falling off of that good place, to do your practices that, you know, help keep you in this good mind-body relationship. And when those don't work, you call someone like me and come right. back in for a little support. It's, yeah. it's a pretty, pretty easy cycle, mm-hmm. you know, that we get to dance with, I think. Definitely.
0: So once the session
1: is over and
0: outside of the session, when the client is just in their daily life, how can they maintain what they what you and the client worked on during the session.
1: Usually for most people it's walking, it's a little bit of awareness. Uh, People come to me in really variable states. So I have some people who are recovering from cancer and pretty aggressive treatments and are really still pretty broken and still coming back at a basic level. Um, I have other people that are really healthy and just want to refine their body experience. Um, So for all of those people, Making sure that we're breathing, oftentimes we stop breathing when we put on a seatbelt. Um, we'll stop breathing um, during times of stress or difficult conversation in a work setting, for example. So just noticing to some degree when you're not breathing, so you can just remind yourself to do it again. Um, that kind of stuff can be really helpful after a session because you have more, um, your connective tissue is more flexible so your parts can move better and so you have better opportunity to get more oxygen to get more air and blood flow going Um, walking is really the best activity for humans and Mm -hmm. so i really encourage everyone to walk Um, compression activities for the first couple days after the session is not ideal we've just made a bunch of space so let your body have the space your connective tissue is going to be clearing out debris waste stuff connective tissue is a good storage spot for anything our body can't clear Um, so a lot of emotional chemicals and Kind of physiology um, that we don't really need to carry around gets cleared out during those two days so i really encourage people to go easy on themselves oftentimes we feel pain after a session um, which if you're coming out of the western medicine model then the work must not have worked right Mm -hmm. but in truth um, we need a little bit of pain as part of healing and if we're honest about the sensation of pain it's not the same kind of pain after a rolfing session there's a different quality to it and it disappears, it ends, it changes. And then people end up feeling better and coherent again. And then, like I said, trusting the gut. um, After a Welfing session, people usually report that they have just better awareness of their gut sense. They hear their gut better. Um, So continuing that. When you hear it, do it, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And that can be hard, depending on your life, but if you can make that choice every third time, you're gonna be in a happier body, you know?
0: Definitely. Great. So, um, so I just want to ask, like, what are you excited about? Um, how do you want your practice to grow?
1: Mm. I am excited just about rolfing. This is such a lame answer. I just think rolfing is the coolest thing. And maybe this is because I got off a rolfing table yesterday, but (laughs) I hadn't been rolfed in quite some, some time. And, um, it's just, I, I really do think this is like this is the missing link and that we've forgotten how to touch each other we've forgotten the value of touch and so you know i came back with some really big ideas um, about how this work could be helpful in this area but i never really committed to liking one of those ideas more than the other and so now that i've been here for three years and i've had some time to look around a little bit I really am interested in helping people touch each other um, learning safe touch yeah learning um, teaching moms how to touch kids and of course moms already know how to touch their babies um, but there are some more sophisticated things there are some things I can teach about how we can inhabit ourselves in a way that makes our touch um, even more helpful right and these are things that I think we do have to teach each other we shouldn't have to figure this all out by ourselves over and over quietly mm-hmm. in our rooms um, and I think that You know, one of the things I like about Cleveland is all the little communities and all the little neighborhoods. And I think that there's a lot of juice and synergy for this kind of work to come into it. So I'm excited about seeing how that's going to unfold very much. Great. Cool.
0: So I know you have to get somewhere soon, but maybe if we can just do a couple of these. So what I'll do is I'll just shuffle these up and then you'll maybe just draw a couple of them. Whatever comes to mind for you, whatever... A certain phrase or word or question makes you feel just go ahead and go cool okay
1: yeah cards <laughs> <laughs> i can pick anything yes. okay oh my goodness sustainability i love sustainability so that's great um I actually think that rolfing makes our bodies sustainable, like it helps us have a sustainable relationship with ourselves, because even if you have the best marriage or the best parent or the best sibling or the best best friend or whatever external to you relationship that you value, um, it really, at the end of the day, just kind of comes down to you. Mm -hmm. And so how can you make yourself stress-proof, right? How can you trauma-proof yourself in a way? How can you navigate life in a way that keeps you pretty even-keeled? And that's what I love about rolfing, that it helps me learn tools and techniques and the truth that I really just need to walk a lot, honestly, and eat good food and laugh with friends. And I'm going to feel pretty resilient and I'm probably going to be able to handle what comes up in my life, right? And that it's such a simple thing, right? And my brain wants to make it more complicated and it's not. And sustainability is a big fancy word that lots of people throw around these days Mm -hmm. and oftentimes... We over-talk ourselves. We overthink it. You know, this stuff is way more simple. It's true. It's way more simple. It's a good response. Can I draw another one? Of Of course. Do you give everyone the same pack of cards?
0: Sometimes I change them up. Some of them are the same. Maybe I took some out from the last one and put some new ones in. Yeah,
1: right. So the next one I pulled is growth. Oh, cool. So um, that's really great. That opened up like... uh, a bigger field Mm -hmm. um, in our conversation. So, you know, growth comes from good things and not so good things, right? We grow from good experiences and um, not so good experiences. And I think that, I don't know, (coughs) excuse me, learning how to kind of tell our story about a painful time in a good way, making a good story out of a painful time, I think that's a really great growth point, Mm -hmm. you know, and I I just talked to someone about this last week. That as we heal, our stories change, right? That's one way we can measure our own growth, Wow! is how we tell our stories. And how did you tell your stories five years ago, right? Exactly. Um, It's an interesting place to think about. Mm
0: -hmm. Great. you want to draw maybe two or three more? Sure. Am
1: I answering too quickly? Oh, no. This is like... like It's kind of quick fire, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Meditation. I wish more of us could meditate. I know someone who says that we should put it in the water. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. But just people you know, would benefit from having this experience. Um, you know, in Asian cultures, people do group exercise like Tai Chi and Qigong Gong and stuff like that. And that can get a meditative state going. If you're quietly moving your body in a group of other people, um, the field sort of regulates, the unseen energy around everyone kind of regulates in a way that um, creates homeostasis, creates a, an equilibrium in the system. It's very helpful and very good. And um, so as much as people like to meditate alone and they take, um, you know, is an important part of our self-care, group meditation is really a good thing. And I particularly like moving meditation. Mm -hmm. I've never been very good at sitting still. um, And I know there's value in it and I can, of course, but um, the first time I ever meditated, I was in high school and we were asked to go to different faith-based services that were not Christian. Um, and so my friends and I went to the Buddhist temple in Euclid and I was a freshman in high school and it was a walking meditation. Wow. And I I really opened up with that because I recognized like the inherent wholeness of moving my body while thinking about these ideas or being in prayer. Um, it felt really complete and really right to me even as a, an inexperienced 14 year old. Um, but also I think that movement can be meditative. I, I've talked to a lot of people who feel that driving, cross-country driving is very meditative. Mm-hmm. Um, riding a bike, you know, any kind of sport or movement can be meditative. So I like to encourage my clients and people I come in contact with to sort of open up their framework of what meditation is. If you're making a really good meal and you're focused on it, that is a meditative experience. You know, If you're knitting something, that oh, can be yeah. a meditative mm-hmm. experience. So if we open up what that definition is, maybe we're doing it a lot more, I agree, yeah, definitely. that's a great way to regard ourselves and to kind of think about your successes in in your day because I think it's easy for our brain to be like, oh, you blew that or that conversation didn't go as well or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to be able to also say, if you're going to say those things to yourself, to say the things like, yeah, but I took that and went out of my way and got that five-minute walk in, you know, or I got to see the bird, whatever, whatever it is. No, definitely. Those moments count. Powerful. And I think it all counts as meditation. Mm-hmm. We need it all. Tyrant. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, I don't know if I should say the first thing that came to my head. Um, so I guess I'll just couch it as science. Um, so our strengths and our weaknesses are the same thing, right? And um, science can help us and science can limit us. Yeah. And so it can be good to, to notice that. Cool. I'm gonna leave it there. That, I think that's a good. That's a, that's very good. Good. I'll hold on for. Cool. Oh, is that? That's, no, that's really good. What do you think happens when we die? Um, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't have any secret insight to this. Um, I don't. I think that all the stories that are there are probably true, like from everything from nothing happening, like we just end, to we come back, right? We take different forms, to we go to heaven or hell or purgatory or something. Um, When I was a really little kid, I used to think that at some point we all came from rocks, (laughs) that we've all embodied all the shapes, right? And that the human shape is the last shape we take. Now, I knew that as a kid. This was not coming from my Catholic like kindergarten training. Um, this was in me somehow. And in my own explorations, I find that this is actually in other practices, that this kind of um, rhythm of taking different forms. Um, I like not knowing. Um, I also know that people have died and that, you know, not only just me, but other people around me have had experiences um, with people who are no longer physically formed. And I don't know what that means. I'm just glad for those experiences. I'm glad to understand that we remain connected, even if we don't have a body. And I think if we really follow that, then we really have to consider a lot. um, If there's really a lot more to the unseen energies around us. Mm then maybe we should conduct ourselves a little bit differently. Um, I'm not particularly curious to find out what happens anytime soon. (laughs) right? Um, But, you know, I've lived enough of life to know that, to be close to the line, right? I've had near-death experiences, and I'm not saying that in a, I've had so many, I'm barely here. But I'm just saying, like, I'm old enough that you live long enough and you get into situations where maybe it's not clear if you're going to make it out of there. Right. And in the most recent one of those experiences, I didn't want to go, but I was okay with going. Interesting. And I think it's important to recognize that it's part of life, death is part of life, but the fighting of it might not be in our best interest while we're living. And Definitely. if we're really afraid of it, that might be something to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And aside from that, you know, I don't, I don't have any special wisdom. Um, yeah. I mean, my dog died in January and there are times, um, we only lived in this apartment for a few weeks before he died. Um, Um, but there are moments where there are sounds here that I cannot explain. And it sounds like him breathing. It's just one exhale or it's one paw track. mm. Um, and there's nothing else in this building right. that would make that sound Definitely. and it, I tend to notice it happening um, not necessarily when I'm sad but when I'm feeling expansive or when I'm feeling connected to that which is bigger than me and that, what I'm a, that whatever I'm a part of um, so I mean I, I have questions about that um, you know Steve Jobs was famously described to be saying oh wow as he as his exit happened uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> so, wow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think that, you know, a good death is something that we might want to talk more about in life. And what does that mean? Mm-hmm. And what does that mean for the people around you, right? Because it's not just you. It is the yeah, people around you. And that you might be giving a much more powerful gift than you realize by organizing yourself towards a good death.
0: Wow. I love that. That's You have been so knowledgeable and... All of your responses were just really insightful, and I'm really excited for people to listen to this. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you for this opportunity. I love this card idea. Good. I love our chat. I think yeah. you're really great at this, and I really just hope that you encu- you continue to do these conversations. I learned so much from the people you interview. So. Thank you so much. That's thank really you. nice of you.
0: Um, so where can people find you? How can people
1: get in touch? Um, I have a simple homemade website. It's clevelandrolfing, R-O-L-F-I-N-G.com. Um, you can email me at leah at clevelandrolfing.com, L-E-A-H. Yeah, Rolfing's great. It's hard (laughs) to talk about, but if your belly kind of made a leaping yes um, motion as you've been hearing this conversation, consider it. Yeah. You know, people know in the first one or two sessions if this is useful. Definitely.
0: All right. Thank thank you. Thank
1: you so much.
0: Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Leah. If you want to find out more about her or if you want to book a session with her, go to www.clevelandrolfing.com. The link for that will be in the show notes. And if you're wondering about who's going to be on next week, I have a really exciting guest and I cannot wait to share it with you. She is someone who I look up to in the podcasting world. It's a podcast that I've been listening to for about a year now called Let It Out with Katie Dalebout, and I get to interview Katie Dalebout. Or I already did. I talked to her last week, and it was such a fun conversation, and it felt like I was just talking to a friend, and I cannot wait for you to listen to that. So make sure you subscribe so that you can listen to that right away. Follow me on Instagram so we can chat, so I can connect with you more. Thank you so much again for listening, and I will talk to you next week. Bye!